Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode 150, Jamie McLeod, Evidence Law's Blind Spots. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the Texas A&M University School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Joining me on Excited Utterance today is Jamie McLeod. Jamie is the director of the Center for the Study of Law, Language, and Cognition, as well as an associate professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. Today, I had the privilege of chatting with Jamie about his most recent paper entitled Evidence Law's Blind Spots, which was published in the Iowa Law Review. In the paper, Jamie takes a look at evidentiary stipulations or other attempts to sanitize evidence at trial. For example, if a party doesn't want to admit details about a prior conviction, but instead wants to just stipulate that a prior conviction exists for a defendant, What are the effects or the ramifications of that decision? Jamie's paper takes an empirical look at these questions and discovers, rather counterintuitively, that there are consequences, potential dangers with stipulating to evidence. The more we try to sanitize evidence, the more of an avenue we get for jury animus or jury bias to potentially infect the deliberation room. Jamie and I will talk today about the precise contours of his findings, as well as their normative implications. How can we mitigate the risk that this animus might infect deliberations? Ultimately, I think Jamie's paper is simply fantastic. It's incredibly important, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jamie today. Jamie, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, we're happy that you are here. And today we're talking about the intersection of evidence law and and jury bias or jury animus. And to my mind, this is such an important topic. I think that this is perhaps one of the most important topics in the field of evidence law right now. But I'm curious in your context, what led you to this particular focus? Yeah, I guess two things. First, when I was in private practice, I got to work with jury consultants a lot and run a lot of empirical studies that involved watching mock jurors deliberate. And watching these deliberations, I kept noticing how individual juror attitudes and group deliberations could differ based in part on what were supposed to be irrelevant things like the appearance of one of the parties, whether they appeared to be attractive or unattractive or annoying or charming, wealthy or poor, etc. So working with these jury consultants in private practice got me thinking about the extent to which various biases, including race-based ones, might be playing a role in how a juror thinks about a case. So that was one source of interest. And then a second one, I got really interested in these empirical studies of ban the box laws. So these laws withhold information from employers about job applicants' prior convictions. And these pretty sophisticated empirical studies have found that one thing that happens is that employers lacking information about the individual applicants fall back on group-based stereotypes and sort of presume, for example, that a young black male applicant has a prior conviction whereas, say, a a white applicant doesn't. 
So it turns out these ban the box laws lead to less hiring of young black male applicants. And I was reading these really interesting studies. And then as I began teaching evidence law, I kept reading all these decisions where judges were withholding information from the jury. And I kept wondering, what's filling in the gap in information here? How are juries filling in these informational gaps? Are they doing it in a way that tends to favor some litigants over others in the same way that these employers in the ban the box setting were filling in an informational gap in a way that worked to the disadvantage of young black male job applicants. So really the uh, ban the box literature combined with this prior experience doing these observations of mock jury deliberations got me thinking a lot about this as I was teaching evidence. Well, I will say for my part, I was so glad when I came across your paper because I was like, someone needs to write about this topic. And I was thrilled to see that you you dove in and you really treated the issue and treated the the topic with such care and provided such insight that I'm really excited to, to dive into this paper today. So the launching point for our discussion regarding your paper is actually going to be a very famous Supreme Court case. This is Old Chief v. United States. If we have evidence professors listening to this particular episode, I'm sure you're familiar with the contours of Old Chief. But for those listeners who might not have as deep of an evidence background, what happened in Old Chief? Yeah, so in Old Chief, basically after this street fight in which a gun was fired, Old Chief, the defendant, was charged with assault with a dangerous weapon, with using a firearm in relation to a crime of violence, and with felon in possession of a firearm. And to prove the felon element of the felon in possession charge, the prosecutor wants to introduce not only the fact that Old Chief was previously convicted of a felony, not only the fact of his prior conviction, but also the name and nature of the prior conviction, right? That this prior offense was an assault resulting in serious bodily injury for which Old Chief had been sentenced to five years imprisonment. And the defendant objects and says, I want the jury only to hear that I have a prior felony conviction, not the nature of the prior offense, not that it was for this relatively serious violent felony. So the trial court had allowed the prosecutor to tell the jury about the violent nature of Old Chief's prior offense. But then the Supreme Court held that the district court shouldn't have done so, basically that it should have required that the prior conviction information be sanitized. That's the term that's often used. That only the fact of the prior conviction, not its name or nature, be introduced, that it be sanitized in that way. Well, let me follow up on that note, because I think that's quite important. Why did the Supreme Court want to exclude details about the the defendant's prior conviction? In other words, you use this word sanitize, right? Why did the Supreme Court want to sanitize this prior conviction evidence? What was the court concerned about? Yeah, so they were concerned with a particular form of what the rules call unfair prejudice, and specifically a concern that the jury would infer from the defendant's commission of a prior violent crime, that he's a violent kind of person, right? That he has a propensity for violence. And then infer from that a greater likelihood that he committed the violent offense with which he now stood charged. 
And the rules try to stop jurors from engaging in that sort of propensity-based inference. And the worry for the court was if we allow the jury to hear this information about the violent nature of the prior offense, they're going to think, oh, old chief, violent kind of person, therefore probably did this violent act with which he's now charged. That's a form of unfair prejudice that the court wanted to prevent. And Jamie, beyond old chief now for a second, do similar concerns lead courts to to sanitize prior conviction evidence in other contexts as well? Yeah, so there are really two main ways that prior conviction evidence gets in. And in, in both settings, courts often sanitize the prior conviction evidence. So the first setting is where, like in Old Chief, the fact of a prior conviction is an element of the substantive offense. So felon in possession, right? And there are lots of crimes like this, not just felon in possession. And the Old Chief case basically requires that courts sanitize the prior conviction information. That is, they don't allow the prosecutor to introduce information about the name or nature of the prior offense. But then there's this second way that prior conviction information also gets introduced, and that's through impeachment of defendant witnesses. So the defendant testifies and the prosecutor wants to impeach the defendant, that is, call into question his his character for truthfulness by bringing up some prior crime that the defendant was convicted of. And in this context, judges often exercise their discretion to allow that form of impeachment, to allow the fact of the prior conviction to get in. But I think they sort of comfort themselves somewhat by deciding to sanitize it. They don't allow the prosecutor to say what the prior offense was for. And then also some states have rules that require sanitizing whenever prior convictions are used to impeach a defendant witness. So in both these settings where it's an element and also where prior conviction is used to impeach a defendant witness, courts, whether they're required to by state rules or whether just in their discretion they decide to, often sanitize prior conviction evidence. Well, I want to follow up real quick on these two contexts where we see sanitization of of prior conviction evidence Because your paper notes that by excluding information about the name and nature of the defendant's prior conviction, in other words, kind of by by sanitizing this prior conviction evidence, courts have actually failed to consider two important consequences. So what's the first consequence that they perhaps ignore? Yeah, so in general, courts have this understandable tendency to focus on the effect that a given piece of evidence will have on the jury if it's introduced but they often fail, I think, to give adequate consideration to what will happen if it's not introduced, to how the jury will fill in the gap in information. I call this gap filling in the paper. And the worrisome thing is juries may often engage in biased gap filling, right? Lacking information about the particular individual, they may fill in the informational gap using group-based stereotypes, the same way that employers do in that ban the box setting I was talking about earlier. So basically, the thing courts tend to overlook is how juries are going to fill in the informational gap when they're told the defendant has a prior conviction, but they're not told anything about the nature of the prior offense. 
jurors' stereotypes, for example, that a poor black defendant compared to a wealthy white defendant is more likely to have committed a violent prior offense, may fill in that gap in information. So the first issue courts tend to ignore, then, is the possibility that when a piece of evidence or a piece of information is withheld from jurors, creating this informational gap, jurors will engage in biased gap filling, and maybe particularly where jurors are told this sort of tantalizing bit of information. The defendant has at least one prior offense, and then they're not told anything about it. Sort of shifts the defendant maybe into this bin. Oh, it's defendant with a prior offense. And then jurors start to maybe implicitly, maybe explicitly fill in that gap in a biased way that works to the disadvantage of certain demographics as defendants. And Jamie, what was that second issue that the Supreme Court ignored? Yeah, so the second issue that I think courts in general tend to pay insufficient attention to is what effect a given evidentiary rule might have in the aggregate beyond the case at hand. So I call this in the paper systemic or or system-wide injustice. The idea is courts quite naturally focus on the case in which they're making the evidentiary determination. But if, for example, courts are routinely admitting the fact of prior convictions and keeping info out about their name and nature, and if that systematically disadvantages, say, Black defendants relative to white defendants due to the biased wagers fill in the gaps, then what effect might that have on who gets charged in the first place, right? It could incentivize overcharging Black defendants relative to white defendants, especially since both the prosecutor and the defense are aware of the defendant's appearance at the time of plea bargaining. It might have a sort of implicit sense of jurors' tendency toward biased gap filling, making these cases against Black defendants with prior convictions at least marginally easier to reach a quick plea bargain in than cases against white defendants with prior convictions. So this second issue or this second blind spot is basically this broader systemic effect of a given evidentiary rule, including effects on who gets charged in the first place, which then feeds back into which groups get stereotyped as criminal, which then feeds back into more biased gap filling in the future, etc. The paper broadens this systemic injustice concern out to other areas, but that's basically the concern as applied in this context of sanitized prior conviction evidence. Now, I have to say, your paper is so fantastic because you don't simply raise these hugely important issues and questions. You also answer them. So tell us first about the empirical study that you designed to to kind of test the effects of admitting this sanitized prior conviction evidence. Yeah, so the survey experimental study basically randomly assigns study participants to read about either a Black defendant or a white defendant. And the story they read is loosely based on Old Chief. So the defendant is charged with firing a gun during this street fight, and these mock jurors taking the study are asked to rate the likelihood the defendant did it, that he's guilty. And to simplify a bit, they're asked to rate his guilt likelihood at different points in the story, at different times in the story. So some rate his guilt likelihood before they learn that he even has a prior conviction, 
Others rate it once they've learned that he has a prior conviction, but before learning the name or nature of the prior offense. And then participants learn the name and nature of the prior offense, then once again rate the likelihood that the defendant is guilty. So you can think of it this way. Participants read about either a black defendant or a white defendant, and they rate the defendant's guilt likelihood at three different junctures. One, a low information point where they don't know he has a prior conviction. Two, at a medium information point where they know he has a prior conviction, but they don't know anything more about the prior offense. Right. So that's the sanitized information regime. And third, at the high information point where they know that his prior conviction was for a serious violent offense. And I wanted to find out whether in each of these three information regimes, low info, medium info, high info, whether there'd be a difference in guilt likelihood ratings for the black defendant compared to the white defendant. I'm curious, the natural follow-up, what did you find in the study? Yeah, so it found no significant race-based disparity in the low information regime. So when mock jurors weren't told that the defendant had a prior conviction, the black and white defendant were rated roughly equally likely to be guilty. But then in the medium info regime, right, so this is like the old chief case, what it tells judges to do, right? In the medium info regime where these mock jurors learn that the defendant has a prior conviction, but they don't learn what it's for, this statistically significant and fairly large race-based disparity gets introduced. So the Black defendant is rated significantly more likely to be guilty than the white defendant. That's the medium info regime. And then in the high info regime, this race-based disparity disappears. So where jurors learn the violent nature of the defendant's prior offense, once again, the Black and white defendant are rated roughly equally likely to be guilty. So it's really only in that medium info regime where mock jurors are learning the fact of the prior conviction, but not its name or nature, that this large race-based disparity emerges. Well, let me follow up then on that medium information regime, because to my mind, that finding in particular seems deeply concerning, deeply troubling. So if you would explain the significance of this material risk of, of racial animus that cases like Old Chief potentially introduce into the courtroom, what, what's the significance of this in terms of not just the study, but extrapolating beyond that? Yeah, the worry is that in cases of prior conviction evidence, of sanitized prior conviction evidence, jurors will fill in the gap in information in a way that'll systematically work to the disadvantage of certain groups. Now, those groups might be black defendants, but there are all sorts of prejudices or biases that may fill in informational gaps other than race-based biases. And this problem of bias gap filling may arise in contexts beyond just prior conviction evidence. After all, the rules of evidence are largely rules of information exclusion. And the concern is that whenever you're excluding information, and especially excluding information after having allowed the jury to learn a piece of information, like the fact that the defendant has a prior conviction, something that sort of piques their interest, 
The concern is that in all sorts of contexts, jurors might be filling in informational gaps in ways that disadvantage groups that are already disadvantaged in society generally. Well, thanks, Jamie. I think that this is such an important issue. And so I want to kind of change our discussion ever so slightly now to talk about the best path forward, the pathway to reform, if you will. So in response to the findings that you've just identified, you offer two proposals for reform. What's what's the first proposal? The first is basically to bar prior convictions from being introduced whenever possible. So remember that there are two sorts of circumstances where prior convictions evidence gets in. First, where like an old chief, someone is charged with a crime that has as an element of the offense felon status, a prior felony conviction. In those sorts of cases, some courts have found clever ways of avoiding having the jury learn that the defendant has a prior conviction. So some create a a bifurcated trial where the jury first reaches a verdict as to the other offenses, and then afterwards learns of the felon in possession charge, learns that the defendant has a prior felony conviction, and reaches a verdict on that. So that's this sort of bifurcated trial mechanism. Other courts have allowed the defendant to plead guilty as to the felon in possession count only, and then proceed to trial on the other counts. Other courts have allowed defendants to selectively waive their jury right as to felon in possession and similar crimes, so that the judge decides that portion of the case, and the jury never learns that the defendant has a prior conviction. Anyway, that's for this tricky situation where possession of a prior conviction is an element of an offense charged. Courts have come up at times with these creative ways of preventing the jury from learning that the defendant has a prior conviction. Uh, And it's, again, not just felon in possession charges, but there are plenty of crimes that have uh, prior convictions as an element or as a sentencing enhancement. So the second way for prior conviction evidence to get in is via impeachment of a defendant witness, right? Or the second main way, at least. And there, I say in the paper, courts should just not allow this. At the very least, where the prior conviction was for an offense that didn't involve any dishonesty on the defendant's part. There are lots of reasons to disallow impeachment of defendant witnesses via prior conviction. And lots of scholars have articulated these reasons. So Jeff Bellin and Anna Roberts come to mind, but evidence scholars seem to, for the most part, agree that judges more often allow in prior conviction-based impeachment of defendant witnesses than they ought to. Unfortunately, the possibility of sanitizing the prior conviction seems to give judges and state rulemakers some feeling of comfort, a feeling that it's okay to let in prior conviction evidence because its harm can be minimized by withholding from the jury information about the name and nature of the prior offense. So you find judges using their discretion, again, to allow in the fact of a prior conviction to impeach a defendant. And you find state rulemakers requiring that prior conviction evidence be sanitized but yet allowing it in in the first place, allowing the fact of a prior conviction in in the first place, and sort of taking solace in the idea that it can be sanitized and that'll minimize the harm. But 
That's precisely the medium info regime that gave rise to the racial disparity in my studies. So in sum, the first proposal is to prevent juries from learning that the defendant has a prior conviction whenever possible. And if I could just applaud this proposal, Jamie, I think that I'm certainly in the camp of evidence scholars who has critiqued Rule 609, and that's certainly a camp led by Jeff Bellin, led by Anna Roberts. But this finding in particular that, you know, we can't go halfway. We have to think about really restricting Rule 609. It's just so insightful. So I'm one part of the paper that I wanted to be sure to highlight myself. You also, though, you don't stop there. You have a second proposal for reform. What's that? Yeah, the second proposal is sort of broader and in some ways more fundamental and in some ways more controversial. It's not as direct an outgrowth of this particular study, but it sort of steps back and looks at evidence law and argues that evidentiary decision makers ought more often than they currently do to consider these broader sort of system-wide effects of evidentiary rules. And I spell out a few ways that this can take place. So one way is by considering when doing a 403 balancing test or other balancing tests where a judge is thinking about the risk of unfair prejudice, really considering what kind of prejudice is at issue and giving some sort of additional weight to certain kinds of unfair prejudice, like race-based prejudice. And I go through ways in which some judges appear to treat all kinds of unfair prejudice the same, that is, consider only how likely they are to lead a jury to reach a verdict based on some improper consideration, while other judges seem to additionally factor in broader system-wide implications, like how would this rule affect other cases in the future, or how does it interact with the history of discrimination against Black people in America, right? And so I go through some cases like Peña Rodriguez that kind of showcase these two different approaches, what I call the broad approach to evidence law that thinks of the decision whether to admit or exclude evidence, at least at times, as having these broader implications and really considers them and factors them in to like how worrisome a given kind of unfair prejudice is, for example. Contrasting that with what I call the narrow or traditional view of evidence law that really tends to focus almost exclusively on accuracy in the instant case, in the case at hand. And so this second proposal, it's a bit more timid and also broader, more fundamental, and admittedly more vague in its contours. But I just sort of gesture at this idea that maybe judges ought more often to consider the broader view of evidence law. And I highlight some cases where it appears judges have begun to take that broader view. And Jamie, I have one last question for you. This is kind of our classic departing question. What's next for the literature here? What's an additional paper that might shed more insight on this issue? I know as a longtime listener to the show that it's a classic <laughs> question. Uh, unfortunately, I fear my answer is a bit less interesting than 
many of the answers you get to it. So this is really a first empirical study or set of studies into this phenomenon. And all empiricists, I think, should be quick to point out that nobody should take something as settled just based on one initial set of studies. And so my sort of boring but important point is that hopefully what's next for the literature, at least the type of paper that would shed further light on this issue, would be something that runs additional tests using different materials. I mean, ideally, it would involve juror deliberation, right, as opposed to just people, isolated mock jurors, answering these guilt likelihood questions. But basically, further studies that could confirm or disconfirm that this is actually happening in real cases, or at least get closer to confirming or disconfirming that. That's what I would love to see, even if it's maybe a little less of an exciting departure from the paper that I've been talking your ear off about for this podcast. Well, Jamie, I think it's it's safe to say that you have started a very important conversation. I couldn't recommend this paper more highly to our listeners. Thanks so much for coming on Excited Utterance. Thank you very much. It's been great. As a concluding note, I really want to emphasize that I think Jamie's paper is simply fantastic. It's incredibly important, and I think it provides one of the best contributions, one of the most significant contributions to the evidence literature in recent memory. For one, of course, the paper provides us with empirical information about evidence law and operation, and I think that's so important. Of course, I am someone who primarily writes normative legal scholarship, and without question, normative legal scholarship has value. But when we're able to actually get data from studies like Jamie's about how our assumptions, how our normative theories actually square with reality, that's hugely important, especially because oftentimes we find that the empirical evidence that we receive from this study is somewhat counterintuitive. For example, for years when teaching Old Chief, I've primarily taught that sanitizing evidence, stipulating to evidence, is a way to mitigate unfair prejudice. But what Jamie shows is that by closing one door, we potentially open a different door to a different form of animus in the deliberation room, indeed an animus that might be even more odious. And that leads me to a second reason why I really enjoyed Jamie's paper and enjoyed our conversation today. It's because his paper explores not just the positive effect of evidence, but it explores the consequences of omitting evidence. Far too often, I think, in evidence law, we focus on what the jury is going to do in the presence of admitted evidence. But I think it's kind of fascinating, as Jamie has done, to really think about what the jury is going to do in the absence of evidence. And oftentimes, that is just as significant of a question. For example, just consider the CSI effect, where the jury, in many cases, far too many cases, is expecting to see some sort of forensic evidence at trial. And in the absence of that forensics evidence, they're reading into the case some sort of weakness that may or may not exist. Jamie now has added to this literature about the absence of evidence, showing that in the absence of information, enough information at least, about a prior conviction or a prior fact, a prior past act, the jury might instead resort to incredibly problematic forms of reasoning. 
So ultimately then, across multiple metrics, I think that Jamie's paper is fantastic. A hugely important contribution to the literature, and I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Jamie today. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the Texas A&M University School of Law. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional assistance was provided by Tammy Pierce, and background music is provided by Kirsten Castle-Greer, Felix Wong, and Alex Crew. I'm, of course, your host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you will join us again next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof.